I'm going to apologize in advance for my voice. It's not quite cooperating this morning. Maybe too much yelling at the mystery dinner last night, I don't know. Last week at about the time we were taking communion, gunshots were ringing out at the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs in Texas. Unexplained, unexplained rampage of a seeming friend of the church resulted in the death of 27 people. They ranged in age from eight months inside the womb up to the age of 77. These events struck a chord with me, particularly when Ray Ortland brought two sobering truths to my attention. First, this was a, a church just like this small church in a small town. And secondly, was us. Because in Christ, we are one. These were our brothers and our sisters who were gunned down. How, how should Christians respond to tragedy? How should we respond to a tragedy like this. I'm going to try and answer that question this morning by turning to Psalm chapter 137. Psalm chapter 137. What you need to know about the Psalter before we enter into it is that it is a, um, a collection or an anthology, a, it's a songbook really. And you can think of it a little bit like a photo album. And it's just kind of taken pictures of people's spiritual lives during different times in their life. And so the, the Psalter actually uh, it covers the whole spectrum of human emotions. If ever you, you find yourself trying to explore, there's usually a psalm to match your particular temperament at that time. The psalms, these songs that, that Israel sang for many years, these songs that Jesus sang, have a way of teaching us the grammar of prayer. They help us to formulate our own prayers and understand our own feelings. And so as we enter into Psalm chapter 137 this morning, I want you to know that uh, I used it to help inform the grammar of my praying in response to uh, last week's tragedies. It was helpful for me. And I hope that after we walk through it this morning, it'll be helpful for you also. This is what is known as an imprecatory psalm. Uh, that's a, a fancy word for a psalm of cursing. Uh, I don't know if this is spot on, but it might be semi-equivalent to telling someone to go to hell today, right? It's calling curses down on 
your one's enemies. And in the Psalms, it's curses down on the enemies of God. And that raises many questions, as do the last few verses of this chapter, and, and we'll, we'll get to those in turn. But for right now, with that knowledge in mind, to tragedy by saying that we should respond to tragedy with lamenting and with longing. And I hope to show you that both of these ideas are present in Psalm chapter 137. And before we get started, let's pray and ask for God's help. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to climb inside of the psalmist's pain. Inside of his, his confusion and his heartbrokenness, that we might better understand our own heartbrokenness. We ask that you would help us to climb inside of this psalm and see the hope of its author. To see Jesus, who is our hope. God, stir our affections with your word once more this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 1 together. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, there we hung up trees. For our captors there asked us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. What's happening here is the Babylonians have come in and they have raised Jerusalem to the ground. They have destroyed the holy temple of God, and they have brought God's people into exile. They've lost everything. I mean, imagine being in the shoes of an Israelite here. Just try to put yourself in their position. Siege was laid to your city. Everybody was on the brink of starving to death. You've lost family members to hunger. You've watched your neighbors slaughtered in front of you. You've watched your friends' wives and daughters become the victims of rape. You've seen others who have been forced to watch their children killed as they were thrust against the ground. And now you have been led as a prisoner into a land that is not yours. You're sitting down by these streams of Babylon. Where one might expect rejoicing, this is a, a beautiful place. It's where the, the mention of the poplar or willow trees is. These trees are flourishing. Uh, the, the rivers of Babylon, these streams, it's not something that everybody had. They're, they're um, irrigation canals so that uh, when nobody else had food because it hadn't rained, 
you were in Babylon, you would have food. So this would be a place where we would almost expect singing. And so, but what the psalmist has done for us is given us this strange juxtaposition. He's in a place that's beautiful. But all he can remember is the city of God that's been lost. And it's important to, to note that Zion or Jerusalem are synonymous here. And they're not just simply the city of God. They, they embody all of the promises of God. And even the very eminent presence of God, which was in the temple that has been destroyed. And so, so imagine you've been led after experiencing all these horrors, and now your captives say to you, their new slave, be our entertainment. But we want you to sing to us the songs of Zion's victory. The songs of your God. Sing them for us. They want you to be their jester. It would be entirely inappropriate for you to sing in this time of despair. There is no singing in the valley of the shadow. It's broken by sobbing. And the sobbing is appropriate. Lamenting or mourning is the appropriate response to great evil. But this, this lamenting is not without hope. Notice that in verses 4 through 6, the psalmist will refuse to sing. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. The psalmist will not rejoice on foreign soil. They will not sing when they should be sorrowing. But they are not left without hope. They have hope. Perhaps you felt, as the psalmist does here, as if you had lost everything, as if God's promises are null and void and that He is nowhere to be found. Not to forget His promises. Not to forget God. Because even though He might feel absent, He is present. In fact, uh, the feeling of his absence is evidence that, that he was present with you in the first place. And the fact that he was present with you in the first place shows you that, that he's real and that his promises are true. God can be trusted. And it's, it's God who has equipped us to suffer well. He knows that we will face evil in this life. And he has provided us a plethora of resources to help us endure suffering. He is our ever-present help in time of need. Second Corinthians calls him the father of mercies. 
2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Jesus has promised us that he will be with us until the very end of the age. The Holy Spirit indwells us as our comforter and our counselor. God has given us himself in order that we might be comforted and encouraged even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of loss. Second Corinthians 1. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. God comforts us and we comfort one another. When tragedy strikes, the right response is to sorrow over it, to lament and to mourn over the evil that has taken place. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those who weep. It's part of the reason God has joined us together in his body as his church. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Friends, we need to be better at sorrowing together over tragedies. Mourning over sin. We need to be people that are willing to weep. is the right response to tragedy. Let me give you a couple wrong ones, though. First, to try and provide easy answers. The scripture doesn't allow us to give smooth answers to cruelty, but we try. And you've probably seen this, right? Um, a hurricane sweeps through some small island And then a religious pundit gets on TV and says something akin to, well, this is the judgment of God on that people. They sinned, God sent the hurricane to kill them all. Easy as that. This pseudo-kindergarten theology is dangerous. It's foolishness. It is apathy dressed up as piety. And it is ugly. Scripture teaches us that there's not easy answers to these things. Look at um, Luke 13. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. At that time, some people came and reported to him, that's Jesus, about the Galilean whose, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, This is Jesus speaking. Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? 
for those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell in on and killed? Do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. You see Jesus' point? He's saying that this terrible thing happened, a tower fell on people, but it's not because they were greater sinners than everybody else. He doesn't give them an explanation after that, but he does say this. Be warned, because there is going to come a day when destruction does come upon you. And if you do not repent, that destruction will be great. But the point I want to draw out from there is to show you that there's not an easy answer for natural disasters. It's not an easy answer for when tragedy happens. A similar thing happens in the book of Job. right? Uh, the book of Job opens up and it tells us in verse 1 of chapter 1 that Job was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And then we, we get into the book and Job has lost his sons and his daughters and all of his wealth and he's sitting atop an ash heap with boils covering his skin and he's scratching himself with a piece of broken pottery. And he says to the Lord, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. And his friend, So if something bad has happened to you, if all these things have happened to you, it's because you've sinned. So all you need to do is confess your sin to God and repent, and uh, he'll forgive you and it'll be all good. And Job refuses throughout the book. He says, I haven't sinned against the Lord. Then at the end of the book, God comes to Job and he says, hey, who are you to question me? He doesn't give him any answers about why he was suffering. He just says, I'm God and I do what I want. And then he says to Job's friends in verses 7 and 8 of Job chapter 42, says, After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Elphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer, offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. It's kind of funny and ironic. Like, Job, all this bad stuff happened to you because you're a sinner. And then at the end of the book, God's like, y'all were lucky that I'm not going to deal with you like you deserve because Job is going to pray for you. We'll get a quick picture of what Jesus does for us there. He's an innocent sufferer who dies on the cross, makes us acceptable to God based on his offering and his prayers. That's the first wrong way to respond to suffering. The second wrong way to respond to suffering that I would like to point out also comes from Job, which I'm just going to take out three themes from the book. One is that uh, bad things happen to good people. Two, God is good. And three, God is sovereign over everything. And see, the second wrong way to respond to evil and suffering is to 
blame God for the evil himself or to pretend that um, God could not stop the evil and that's why it happened. Tragedy happened because God just wasn't strong enough. It It wasn't his will for it to happen. He just couldn't stop it. That's just not the picture we have in the Bible. God is the one who sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He's the one of whom Jesus says, not a sparrow falls to the ground without his consent. He's the God who's numbered the hairs on all the heads of all his people. He is the God who is sovereign over everything. Nothing happens outside of his will. Even evil. Now, don't get me wrong, God doesn't do evil but he permits evil. He permits what he hates, the persistence of evil in his world, in order to accomplish what he loves, namely, the salvation of his people. Particularly, our good Because if he were just to completely eradicate all evil right at once, well, many of those who were to trust in him would not have had the opportunity. His patience in dealing with evil is a kindness that leads his people to repentance. And so two wrong ways to respond. To act as if God is not in control of tragedy, act as if God is not sovereign over all things, or to try and offer smooth and easy answers to suffering. There aren't any. But what we can do with suffering is sorrow over it. And that's what we we should do. In relationship to um, what happened last week, I loved uh, what Beth Moore said. She said, it's sacred to weep for those in Christ's whom we have never met. They are our very own, our flesh, our bone, our people. We share the same blood. We do well to weep over the horrors of evil. We do well to lament the brokenness of our world. But as we lament, we do not forget our hope. And neither does the psalmist. He recalls that hope again. Look at hand, forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. I love this because he says, in a way, curse me if I forget you, God. Cause me to forget how to play my instrument and cause my tongue to go limp in my mouth, cause it to stick to the roof of my mouth. Let me not speak or sing if I forget all of your promises, all of your goodness. We, We kind of expect the psalmist to be completely defeated and to say, Yes, you have destroyed Jerusalem. You have destroyed the temple. We are in exile and we are without hope. But that's not what he does. He doesn't, say, he doesn't go, I'm going to abandon God and just sing. I'm not going to sing the songs of Babylon. Instead of being defeated, 
there is cultivated within him a burning loyalty to his God. Let, let these promises of God, let Jerusalem be my greatest joy. Again, I want to draw your attention to the Edenic scene in which he finds himself. He's, he's in Babylon next to these rivers and these irrigation canals. Uh, the trees are flourishing, and all of this is a sign of great prosperity and great abundance. It would be very easy for the psalmist to forget God and to rejoice in the abundance. In our everyday lives, we sit in great abundance. And we very easily begin to rejoice in those things that we have rather than God. The psalmist refuses. He says, I'm not going to forget God amidst all this prosperity. I'm not going to Sing when I should be sorrowing. I do wonder, let me ask you, if you lost your family and your home and you were taken prisoner to a foreign land, would you remain loyal to God? Would you still love Him? The psalmist does. Repeatedly, he calls us to remember in this psalm. Verse 1, they remembered Zion. Verse 4 through 6, he refuses to forget Jerusalem. And now, he addresses the Lord and calls the Lord to remember. Verses 7 through 9. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it, down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. You feel his anger? His seething longing for justice? Can you relate to it at all? Have you ever seen so, such a great evil that, that you almost burst crying out to God, please, no, Maranatha, come, Jesus, now. Make this right. That's what the psalmist is doing here. And the construction is, is really neat. It's hard to catch things like this in English, and I don't catch them either until I start to read commentaries, right? Smarter people tell me, and then I tell you. That's my secret. But this construction where it says, remember, Lord, is literally in Hebrew, remember against. And this is a legal phrase, which tips us off to the judicial setting in which the psalmist has cast himself. So, so here's the picture that he's painting for us. Here, here's the psalmist. He's standing in a courtroom. God is sitting in the judgment seat. Babylon is in the defendant's chair. And Edom is in the gallery. And, and he begins by addressing the judge. 
Remember, Lord, what Edom did. He's pointing to them in the gallery. You remember what they did? How they cheered on Babylon as they went in and destroyed our city. They said, destroy it. Destroy it. Don't forget the evil they have done. He's calling to God for justice. And then he turns to face Babylon. takes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. He picks this picture on purpose. This would have shocked the original readers as much as it shocks you. You know why he picks it? Because he looks at what the Babylonians did in Jerusalem when they came, and he finds the most abhorrent picture of their evil that he can. And he says, this is what they've done to us. And he's asking God to adjudicate rightly. It's the, the, the principle of, of, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The, the idea here is that he wants the punishment to fit the crime. So punish them according to the evil they've done. Let the evil that they've done come back and fall upon their own heads. Be just God. Quick, quick note here. I want you to, to see what he is not doing. He's not taking out his notepad and a pencil and writing down the names of individuals. Like Jim from Babylon. Right? And then like writing in a little parentheses. Gonna take his kids and dash them against the rocks. This is my revenge. So he's, not, he's not making a hit list. He's not seeking out personal revenge. And the biblical ethic here is consistent. Right? Leviticus 19 tells us Verse 17 through 18. Do not take revenge, bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in, in Romans 12, starting in verse 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap fiery coals upon his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Here's the the ethic that's consistent. Long for justice, but don't take vengeance into your own hands. Leave the wrath of God to God. God is the avenger. You are not. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue legal justice. If somebody steals your car, yeah, go through the legal channels and do what you need to do. The idea here is is that ultimately these systems in our world will fail and, and we will need to appeal to a greater judge to fix and heal, to make whole that which is broken. There's a realization in the psalmist, I think, when he brings these charges before the Lord. God, this world is so broken, the only one that can make it right is you. That's true, isn't it? You've been wronged. You've been wronged in ways that that nobody alive can, can ever make right. If you've lived long enough, you know that, that 
that the way that this world is, is broken and, and filled with the horror amount of education, no political party, no amount of cultural wokeness or niceness can fix what has gone wrong. Only God can make wrongs right. Only God can make whole that which is broken. Only God can redeem, restore, and revive. Only God can bring life out of death. Only God can make those who sow in tears to reap with songs of joy. Only God can put a smile on our suffering. Only God can turn our agonies into glories. And He will. When Christ returns, He's going to cause even death itself to work backwards. So, to long for someone to do right, to make all things right, to make all things well. And this, this impulse to go to God with our brokenness and to long for things to be made right is, is etched on our bones. It's, it's written on our souls. It is a good and right desire to want justice in the world. It is a right desire to be angry at evil. You should be angry at human trafficking. You should be angry at racism. We should be angry at the killing of infants. We, we should be angry about these things. They are unjust. And we should be righteously angry about them. And we should long for Christ to return and to put an end to them. We should long for God to bring justice to our world. We should long for God to put all of his enemies. But if we leave it there, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. Because at one time, we were in that category of God's enemies who would need to be put under his feet. Romans 5, verse 8. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We were God's enemies deserving of wrath. We were
like Paul, the killer of Christians, until we had our own Damascus Road experience and became little evangelists. How can God forgive people as wicked and terrible as us? People who demanded our way rather than his way. How can God forgive rebels who would rather kill him than crown him? Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God presented Him as a propitiation for our sin, as an atoning sacrifice in His blood we received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declare righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus, so so that he would be just and justifier. What's Paul saying in, in Romans there is that we all deserve to be under the wrath of God. And God, if he is a just judge, he must punish the evil that we have done. So, so how, how can he forgive us? And Paul's answer is, is through Jesus Christ. See, the cross is where God's justice and his mercy meet. It's where his wrath the cross is the measure of God's goodness. It magnifies for us his commitment to both his holy righteousness and his commitment to love us. So that all who will shelter themselves by faith beneath the blood of Christ, will have their sins passed over eternally. Because in Christ, their sins have been dealt with. God is just and justifier. He has dealt with evil in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, Your evil still awaits a day of judgment. All sin has been or will be punished. Your sin's either been punished in Christ or it will, will be punished on the day of the Lord. You will absorb God's wrath yourself or you will by faith trust in Christ who will have absorbed that wrath for you. God is the righteous judge. And he, he answers this plea. I want you to read verse 9. 
Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Together with Isaiah 53. Starting with verse 3. Speaking of the servant that is to come and save God's people, Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like like sheep, went astray. We've all turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had, spoken, had not spoken deceitfully. And I want you to see verse 10, right next to verse 9. Happy is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. There would be only one child crushed in response to this prayer. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him, that's Jesus, severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Friends, God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to be dashed against the rocks of his wrath and his holy justice so that you and I never have to be. That's the good news of the gospel. God happily gave up himself to the punishment that we deserve in order to bring us into his family. Who does this? God does. Because he's good. Not because you're special, but because he loves you. So so how, how do Christians respond to tragedy? I think with a lamenting over evil and a longing for justice, but it's a longing for justice coupled with a longing for the salvation of the unjust. And so as we 
pray for God to come and make all things new and to wipe every tear from the eye. We also pray for the salvation of God's enemies among whom we once walked. And so we respond to tragedy with lamenting and longing and with hope in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom all the promises of God find their yes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the songs of Jesus that have been written down for us in the Psalms. Thank you that when we don't know how to pray, they, they're such a ready guide. that They, they reflect the, the reality of what goes on inside of us sometimes, Lord. You feature your people sorrowing beyond their wildest imaginations and, and they feature people being angry. And Lord, we, we sorrow and, and, and we get angry. We lament and, and we long for justice and we thank you that you've given us these words to help guide our prayers, to help us to respond rightly to the horrors of evil. God, we pray that when we encounter the horrors of wickedness, when we encounter tragedies, that these wouldn't be things that cause us to push away from you, but cause us to press into your mercy and your love and to trust you more. Because we know that you are good. That you are coming to make all things well. We know that uh, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot is, your spirit can teach us to say it is well it is well with my soul. And so that's our cry this morning, God. That amidst the brokenness of our world, we would lament that brokenness, long for your justice, long for your return, and put our hope in Christ all the while singing, it is well. It's in Christ's name that we pray.